Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Sydney Powell, founder and CEO of Maple Finance, a new protocol that is looking to decentralize institutional borrowing. We peel back the history of Maple Finance and begin with its origin story from 2018 back when its tagline was to be the world's first crypto bond platform and introduced collateralized lending using yield-generating tokenized assets. We discussed how this initial proposition pivoted to Maple creating lending communities to facilitate peer-to-peer loans, why this didn't work out, and how Maple eventually landed on the focus around institutional borrowing. Sid talks about why he is convinced now is an opportune time to decentralize on-chain lending and how Maple is equipped to scale its under-collateralized lending protocol. Amber is excited to be part of Maple's first cohort of institutional borrowers and looks forward to the team's growth. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Sid, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me. Hey, Leslie, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Today, I am just so excited to talk about Maple Finance, uh, which is one of the newer protocols that's come out to facilitate the growing crypto lending space. Maple Finance is in the business of decentralizing institutional borrowing. Um, and with your peer to pool design, loans are funded by liquidity pools that offer liquidity providers access to a diversified, high yielding pool of corporate and institutional loans allowing reputable crypto-native companies to borrow capital efficiently. We're going to break down a lot of what I just said there, but we're seeing just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to token-enabled credit underwriting. So let's open up the conversation by starting with the big picture, right? Why is now the most opportune time to build out a decentralized on-chain credit market? Mm. That's a really good question, Leslie. I think a few things contribute to why now is a really good time. Probably the, the the broader growth of the market more than anything. So I think our thesis has been that you've now started to see the first crypto native companies emerge who have found product market fit. Uh, these companies, they tend to be market makers, market neutral funds and exchanges for the most part, but they've They've developed very strong balance sheets. They have very good reputations and they're all highly profitable and cash flow positive. So these companies, they're going to be many times the size they are now. They will need capital in order to kind of reach that growth potential, but they're largely barred from accessing that capital from the traditional financial system. And then their alternatives within the CFI lending space tend to be over collateralized. So what we recognize is that you need credit creation for these companies in order for the crypto native industry to grow. And I think that's the single largest factor about why now. Uh, and then you're seeing broader participation and uh, development of the DeFi ecosystem so that we now have uh, the necessary skills, both for developers to build a protocol like this and the awareness and participation from people who say want to provide liquidity that can then be lent out to these companies. So those, those, those are the key elements. We now have uh, companies that really need this capital. We have people who are aware and willing to provide it. And we have the skill sets to, to build a product and build this infrastructure. 
and Maple is ultimately infrastructure for capital markets. So you mentioned the phrase credit creation. I mean, yeah. the lending markets have ballooned, right, over the past, let's say, one and a half years. How have we not seen credit creation in the market so far? I think contrary to belief, right? There is the sense yeah. that the market has grown, but it's not true credit creation, right? Talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And it's a really important distinction to make. So when you look at over-collateralized loans, uh, there's a strong argument to make that this is not actual credit creation because you're putting down $150 worth of collateral to borrow $100 worth of loans by and large. So since there's not that element of credit risk, it's not credit creation, which leads to larger aggregate asset balances within the space for these companies. So though you've had ballooning volumes locked in protocols like Aave, like Compound, and you know some of the uh, the over-collateralized centralized lenders, there has been far less actual lending to these companies. And when I say lending, I mean under-collateralized loans, like actually mm. extending credit uh, to the companies within the space. And I think a strong reason for this has been people's reservations with the pseudonymity of blockchain lending. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's one of the reasons that people talk a lot about credit scoring within the space and the necessity of credit scoring and identity to be able to lend to people. That's also taking more of kind of a retail focus. And so what we did was we've just kind of sidestepped this problem and said, <clears throat> we, Maple, will focus on uh, lending to institutional borrowers through the platform. And so those institutional borrowers would then you know, put their reputation behind their lens and they'd, they'd be KYC'd. And because they're borrowing in larger amounts, you can afford to invest the resourcing into due diligence, setting up a framework for legal enforcement. Mm-hmm. Institutional debt has a far larger awareness amongst investors and lenders. Uh, so you're able, to, you're able to source the necessary liquidity there. And then it has a far lower credit risk and probability of default than lending to the average sort of retail or individual borrower. That's one of the elements that's now propelled it forward now and why we've chosen to focus on institutional lending. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Maple has been formulating, I think, this under-collateralized credit underwriting uh, concept, right, for a few years now. But I believe the early days looked a little bit different uh, from the iteration (laughs) of Maple Finance we see today. So perhaps we can peel back the Maple story a bit uh, to when the tagline, as I read it in a blog post, was Maple, the world's first crypto bond platform. The idea was to allow users to create or invest in crypto bonds called smart bonds uh, in an effort to replace lending collateralized by cash with lending collateralized by revenue generating assets. Share with us the origin story of Maple Finance and, yeah. and the idea that you had back then. Yeah, uh, so that's that's a really good question. So. Uh, we have been working on this problem, me and my co-founder, since very early 20, 2019, and we're thinking about it from sort of 20, 2018. So it comes back to my background was in securitization and structured products, so mortgage and asset-backed bonds during a career in banking. And with securitization, what you would, of course, do is you take uh, loans, which are your yield-generating asset, and then you package them into uh, a basket and then that basket is then tranched and you issue uh, bonds against it. That was the initial proposition with Maple was could we take on-chain tokenized assets, which would be yield generating, you know, think on-chain loans, and then you use smart contracts 
to tranche them into a senior, a mezzanine, and a junior class of risk. And then those could be sold as tokens um, to enable uh, theoretically uh, lending companies uh, on the blockchain or other commercial entities to, uh, to, to borrow. So to, to raise debt by issuing those, uh, you know, effectively some form of sort of tokenized, uh, tokenized bond in that way. Um, that's quite, what's interesting is that's quite similar to what uh, Barnbridge has sort of turned out like. Mm. Uh, but this was actually the basis for a white paper that I wrote at the beginning of 2019. And then we progressed through the middle of 2019, finding a software studio to then build a proof of concept for us. So that was a studio um, uh, located in Australia. And then we got towards the end of 2019, but we found that the yield generating assets in uh, in DeFi weren't there to integrate with. I think the only one at the time was Compound's CDI. And it seems silly to say now that there were no yield generating assets in DeFi, but that, <laughs> that was definitely the case back then. And so then what we pivoted to was let's go and create our own yield generating assets. And so we looked at whether we could do uh, lending, uh, in, in, in effect, uh, kind of lending communities where we could mm -hmm. then uh, do loans, uh, you know, effectively peer-to-peer -peer loans at the time. Um, but uh, the largest appetite at that time, so this was very early 2020 when we, when we made a basic proof of concept there, the challenges we faced were those ones that I mentioned before. So you're looking at some people who prefer to remain pseudonymous. Uh, the risk of uh, loans to an individual is much higher than it is to an institution. You know, then there was the overhead of actually having to assess the credit quality of the borrower uh, and doing that. You couldn't really do that at scale for small scale loans. So we progressed through 2020 and then we really started to think about, uh, you know, how we could return to this institutional uh, you know, this serve this institutional need. And then we also incorporated the token at this point because we recognized that you could still have the best of our earlier idea, uh, mm -hmm. which was uh, the allocation of risk using a tranching type structure. And that's what we've emerged to at the moment, which is where you would have pools that lend to uh, crypto native institutions. Um, so like a, a market maker or market neutral fund. Uh, and then that pool has a reserve below it, which is comprised of uh, the staked Maple token and USDC. But that just ensures that people who are lending into that pool uh, occupy more of a senior position and, and uh, have a lower risk. So they can absorb some level of defaults uh, by having that reserve sit beneath them. And the other element that we introduced was we said, how do we take a protocol that's going to do under collateralized lending and help it to scale? Uh, and one of the ways that we've we've solved for this is by having this role of the pool delegate. So the pool delegate you know, would manage each of the liquidity pools on Maple, and they can create one and then use it to pursue a certain lending strategy, which could be a particular industry, a particular region, or a particular risk level. But they have the expertise to assess those borrowers. And they're incentivized with a fee for doing so. And this was something that we lacked in the uh, in the earlier iterations of Maple, and how we had thought about it previously. But we think the expertise is now there in the crypto mm -hmm. space, and uh, this provides almost a new form of kind of node validator. If you think about it, these are participants who are coming into the space and who are monetizing their expertise. And then they also stake the Maple token so that they align their incentives with the other participants on the platform. So now we've arrived 
at the new primitive, right? These liquidity pools. And I think core to the concept of our conversation around liquidity providers, which take on a very central role in DeFi, um, is the concept of funding diversity, which you have, have sure. spoken quite a bit about. You know, and during your time in the capital markets, I imagine that's something that you've recognized as well, right? Funding diversity in the capital markets yeah. for a lot of the corporates in this space. How does Maple guarantee this type of funding diversity in a growing and emerging young DeFi market? Yeah, so I think funding diversity is something that's very important. Uh, it's it's very important to all companies operating within the space. They source capital. You know, if if they happen to be borrowing that capital, if you're sourcing it from a single lender, then you don't have funding diversity. But if you're able to source it from multiple lenders. Um, whether that be, let's say in this instance, by uh, a pool on Maple or multiple pools on Maple, a centralized lender, and there may be some, some form through a, another DeFi lending protocol. What you're able to do is you, you ensure then that if any one of these lenders needs to pull your funding lines, your business does not face existential risk. Uh, so this is something that's commonly practiced in traditional finance and with larger Fortune 500 companies, where one of them might have, say, a loan with uh, JP Morgan, it might also have some short-term bonds on issue, uh, and that that then achieves funding diversity. Uh, and so, what we want what we want to offer with Maple is by presenting this capital market, you're able to, if you're a, if you're a, a market maker, you could have a line of credit with, say, a centralized lender like a, a BlockFi. Uh, you could then also have a loan from a uh, liquidity pool on Maple, and indeed multiple uh, multiple uh, loans through Maple, and that ensures that you're not at risk of any one lender pulling your funding. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you can think of it this way: trying to climb the side of a mountain, and now you have two ropes holding you to the side of the mountain instead of just one. Right. And right. so we think that that additional uh, that additional safety is very important if you want to build. Uh, build an institution and a business that you want to be around for five years from now. Because what a lot of people won't remember, but what happened during the GFC was that funding lines got pulled from a lot of businesses who only had one banking partner. Right. That's exactly correct. So then what do you envision with Maple Finance when it comes to the liquidity provision side of the equation? The lenders will be providing Mm -hmm. capital for the borrowers. What's in it for them providing liquidity on Maple Finance versus going off to another platform? Yeah. So I think there's there's a few things that, that Maple offers that is quite differentiated within the space. So firstly, if you're a liquidity provider, you benefit from diversification. You're lending into a pool of loans. So you shouldn't be exposed to any one borrower defaulting uh, on, a, on a loan within that pool. Um, the second element is that you get a set and forget solution. We recognize that not everybody has the expertise to go and assess uh, corporate credit uh, or, the, or the time or inclination to do so. But by selecting your pool based on the strategy, the returns it's achieved to date and the pool delegates um, expertise, uh, you get a set and forget solution where you just have to deposit, the pool delegate will assess the borrowers and then you can just simply watch, uh, watch your deposit compound. And then the third and final element, which is really important to note, is that um, the liquidity providers also benefit from the credit enhancement of that reserve. So let's say you have a $100 million pool on Maple and you're depositing to it. 
Well, if that pool has a reserve of, let's say, 8 to 10 million in staked Maple tokens and USDC, that means that you'd need to see more than 8 to 10 million of defaults within that pool uh, before you would be, you know, before you bear any credit risk uh, of losing money as a result of those defaults. Because if there are any, then they just get burnt out of that reserve. So those are three key elements, which we think makes Maple a lot more appealing, particularly to sort of larger, a little bit more risk averse um, depositors who are looking for more of a sustainable yield. And that sustainability of the yield is another element that's really important to note. So these, you know, these yields are coming from the underlying business operations and provision of a service by these companies. So uh, market makers, funds, exchanges, miners, uh, as opposed to simply front-loading token valuations, which is the case on a lot of other platforms within DeFi. So yeah, so you get that kind of uh, sustainability you get the uh, risk mitigation and the diversification that I mentioned mm -hmm. before as well. How do you think about the difference, I guess, right now within the crypto space between patient capital versus active capital? Is that even a proper yeah. way to <laughs> label the different types of market participants in this space right now? Right, because mm. I'm certainly not uh, an active capital person where I'm trying to figure out all the highest rates on various yield farming opportunities. I fit quite yeah. nicely into the portfolio of the set and forget type strategy, right? That you guys cater to. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a good distinction. Within the space at the moment, you, you tend to see a bit of a bifurcation where you would have a protocol which is trying to provide 500 plus APY. Uh, through really aggressive distribution of its native token. I think what we're looking for is more patient capital, as you said, that wants to participate in the growth of the protocol. Part of the way that we've attracted that is one, by focusing on focusing on who we're communicating to and really communicating that value proposition of this is a partnership which supports the growth of crypto native companies and uh, and the crypto economy. And the second element is that when you're providing liquidity on Maple, so there's a 180 day lock, and that's because uh, you're providing capital, which is, is being used to fund term loans. So that, that, that money uh, goes in and then it gets lent out to these companies. And the first lot of loans were on a 90 day term. Uh, so it makes sense for us to seek to keep that capital locked in so that we can do one to two cycles of loans for each dollar of capital that gets locked up. The other element is uh, with the like the first liquidity program, it was targeting you know something closer to like a, a forty to sixty percent APY based on the native token again. So so we're looking for people who are more seeking that kind of longer term, uh, you know, longer term yield. Mm -hmm. And the other element is that we would see ourselves fitting into and and we can talk on this later, but I kind of call it like more like a, a low to medium risk kind of category in DeFi where as treasuries start to look at how they how they manage their capital, you might have kind of low risk money market opportunities. Then you would have mid market, you know, medium risk opportunities, and that that's where something like corporate credit probably fits in. And then you would have more speculative, higher risk opportunities that you know that correspond to a higher return elsewhere. We'll definitely touch on that in in just a bit. But there's so much to talk about. I think when it comes to understanding how you guys built the protocol, right? Like all of the efforts that went behind figuring out what the design space was yeah. for something like 
aligning incentives, you know, amongst Hmm. all the players on the protocol. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Like your conversations with your co-founders, with your team, about how you guys are bringing all of these players onto the protocol? Because that is something that all new protocols and existing protocols uh, have to continuously think about because there's there's always a bone being thrown at them from other protocols, basically. So there's this constant challenge to attract sticky capital. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. So yeah, what yeah. were your conversations like? Yeah, that is another interesting question. And it's one that we we had to think very deeply about. So when we started, we said, you know, we liked the idea of having multiple pools that could then pursue different strategies and where risk can then be quarantined within a specific pool. And so starting starting from that base and then having you know having this concept of liquidity pools we then looked at who the key participants would be and so we we first and foremost have the liquidity providers who are depositing to that and we started to think well what would be really important to them and it's primarily going to be risk mitigation these are people who are looking for more of a kind of steady low to medium risk uh yield and So that was where things like diversification came in, but that was where we first started thinking about having the kind of the uh, first loss reserve of the Maple token and USDC, which would sit beneath them. Because we said, okay, we we want to make this, uh, you know, palatable to perhaps risk off or more risk averse institutions, family offices, that kind of market segment as well. So then, then we looked at the kind of the credit assessment component and that's where the pool delegate came in because the pool delegate, you know, sets mm-hmm. the lending strategy for a liquidity pool. And this was important for the growth of the protocol because it enables the scaling of the underwriting. If you have a, you know, if, if you have a pool that you would only, you can only have people lend into who already understand credit assessment, well, you have a very narrow market there. It's not one that's going to scale and serve a lot of people. Uh, so that was why we introduced the role of the pool delegate and, uh, the way that we ensure that their incentives are aligned is that when they create a pool, they need to stake uh, a basic amount of the Maple token and uh, USDC. So to begin with, that's $100,000 worth. Um, that just ensures that they have skin in the game alongside both other stakers um, and other people can stake that pool. So it's not just the 100000 provided by the pool delegate, which mm-hmm. provides that reserve. Um, uh, and then... Uh, that also aligns their incentives um, and puts them in the riskier position relative to the liquidity providers in their pool. The pool delegates to keep them incentivized to continuing to uh, to originate good credit uh, through there, we, we have them receive a portion of an establishment fee. So they receive about half the establishment fee on the platform. And then they would receive about one-tenth of the interest yield that comes through to their pool. So you could think of that like an ongoing fee for continuing to originate good credit. And they can set that level. So this is this is one of the ways that we thought about aligning incentives is that uh, you can have a pool delegate who might be able to pursue a much lower risk lending strategy, but then there's not going to be as much yield coming through uh, but because there's not likely to be as much as many defaults, they could set that fee lower because they don't need to attract as high a staking reserve. Mm. Whereas alternatively, you could have a pool delegate, let's say like an oak tree would be a really good example here, who might pursue a much higher risk lending strategy, but therefore they would res- they would be expecting much higher yields. And so what they might do is direct a higher fee across to the stakers in their pool so that they can attract a larger reserve 
and therefore have a higher level of credit protection that means that it's still palatable for certain institutions to enter and provide liquidity to their pool. So we wanted to create a kind of elegant mechanism which can be flexible with the market and adjust to the risk levels. Um, so that's how we that's how we uh, managed uh, risk and incentives for the pool delegate and for the uh, the liquidity providers. Then for stakers, it's uh, you know it, it's the other side of the same coin. They will be attracted by the portion of interest yield that they can receive from staking a pool, and that should lead to them staking enough that the reserve can protect protect against expected defaults in their pool, while still ensuring that they receive. Uh, a reasonable yield, uh, which kind of compensates them for taking that subordinated risk. So we would imagine that a staking reserve for a pool probably gets to, let's say, something like eight odd percent of that mm. pool, which should give you a reasonable multiple of potential defaults, while still ensuring that they perhaps receive more of like a high teens uh, yield from the portion of interest they claim. And any Maple token holder can obviously stake in the pool, right? Yes. Yeah, so the way that staking works is that you would take the Maple token and USDC, and then you would deposit those into a balancer pool, and you take the balancer pool token, which is like your LP token from a Uniswap pool, mm-hmm. and you, you stake that to a Maple pool of your choice. So this is where it gets really quite interesting, because you could say, well, I would like to stake this Maple pool, which targets the mining industry, uh, for example, uh, or it could target a pool that is looking at exchanges, uh, mm-hmm. or market mm-hmm. makers, or a pool that might be focused on, say, Southeast Asia, uh, or alternatively, one that could be focused on Europe. So it, you, you, get, you get to choose all these different strategies. Mm. Yeah, there's like this, this uh, stratification of, I guess, market participants that you would be lending into, or I guess for a staker, you know, staking your, your tokens in. Um, yeah. And each one comes with, obviously, a different risk profile, you might have a balanced strategy of some sort where you're lending perhaps to uh, miners who might be more uh, high risk in your mind versus like a market neutral market maker, right? And then that way you kind of blend uh, your portfolio there. Yeah, I like that. And and, and you could also... I mean, because because the LP token, you know, because the liquidity pools, uh, when you deposit into it, you get your LP token. You could actually then do like a composite strategy, which could be deposit into a single pool, and it actually gets spread across three different pools, in kind of a balanced weighting. But that's you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, you know, that's for the future. V two, V two or V three? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Um, I mean, how is the first? cohort uh, looked like so far and obviously amber is is part of that first cohort but what's the feedback been both from the borrower side and and from the lenders as well the liquidity providers yeah the uh the, the first cohort has gone uh has gone really well so we did uh for for context we did about 17 million in loans to borrowers in the first cohort and they were primarily market makers and market neutral funds uh, like Amber. Some of the other borrowers that we had in that pool uh, were uh, Alameda, uh, Wintermute, for example. And so we, we have a great set of partners that we're really excited to, you know, to, to begin a long-term partnership with. Um, we had uh, relatively, uh, you know, they, they found it relatively smooth using our front end. So the borrowers would create, uh, create their loan request using Maple's web app. This creates the loan request on chain, which can then be funded by the pool delegate. And then the borrowers could just draw that down 
using an on-chain, uh, you know, an on-chain function call uh, through the uh, through the web app. Uh, but what was really interesting, so with the 17 mil of liquidity we did, we had about 13 mil from sort of institutional commitments, which had been um, pre-arranged. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we had this, uh, you know, three and a half mil uh, for uh, broader DeFi or public DeFi. And we opened that up. When we opened that pool up, uh, we thought that might take three days to fill, but it ended up being filled in, in less than an hour. So we're pretty pleased with that result. Wow. Um, and so now for us, uh, what we're focused on is uh, increasing that pool uh, because we have, you know, we have a continuing pipeline of borrowers uh, who are looking to use the platform. And then we, we have people who are, who are wanting to provide liquidity in here. So we're looking to do, a, to do our second tranche in that pool towards the, uh, towards the end of this month. And that would look like another 15 odd mil. And then what we want to do though, is then start to get more, you know, more regular in when these loans are created. So start to move to something like, you know, every one to two weeks, doing a new set of loans that we can through the uh, through the platform. And then mm -hmm. we're also super excited that we'll have a second pool being started in early July with a new pool delegate that we'll be able to announce soon. Nice. So for our listeners tuning in right now, perhaps who are newer to crypto and learning about the crypto lending space, loans on Maple are under collateralized, uh, which means that liquidity providers bear credit risk, right? In the event uh, that a yeah. borrower defaults on their loan. So walk us through how the protocol would handle a loan default, right? What legal rights do Maple Finance or the liquidity providers have in, in this scenario? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and it's one that you know it's one that's always top of mind for us is how we manage that risk. And so, what would happen? Let's say let's say you've got a loan that's fifty percent collateralized by a borrower. So that means that let's say they put uh, they borrowed two million dollars, they put one million dollars of of wrapped Bitcoin into the uh, into the protocol as collateral. So what would happen is what would trigger that borrower to to default is non-payment of their interest payment. So in, interest is paid monthly on the platform. Our loans are interest only. Um, now, if a borrower misses that payment, they have five days grace period in which they, they can make that payment up. And we would hope during that time that they contact the pool delegate and kind of discuss, you know, discuss any issues there. If the borrower is still unable to pay that loan after, uh, after five days, the pool delegate can trigger a liquidation function uh, and that would then uh, liquidate the collateral for USDC, which is uh, you know, the, the denomination of the loan. Then what would happen is that would leave a shortfall because the loan was under collateralized and that shortfall would be taken out of the reserve. So it would take out that balancer pool token, redeem it into the balancer pool and retrieve USDC uh, mm -hmm. Out of that, and put it back into the liquidity pool to make the uh, make the liquidity providers whole for for that defaulted loan. On the legal side, when the borrowers sign up to to Maple as a platform, what they do is they uh, they execute a master loan agreement, and that gives uh, that gives the protocol the right uh, to to enforcement if if a borrower defaults. And how that would work is because we have the DAO that sits behind the protocol, we have a Cayman Foundation which would be the assigned enforcer. And so that's, uh, that's set up. And that has the right under the master loan agreement 
to uh, to bring an enforcement action either through litigation in New York uh, or through you know AAA arbitration proceedings um, with the borrower. And so that would then be the way in which kind of legal recourse or a legal resolution is sought with that borrower. Got it. Then let's talk about some uh, other perhaps misunderstood aspects about Maple Finance when people talk to you about your competitors. I imagine this was a conversation you had every single day as you were going through the funding (laughs) round, right? Um, There's so-and-so in the market, so-and-so in the market. How are you different? How are you that? So let's not cover the whole gamut, but perhaps pick out some specific points and uh, talk to us about who your competitors are in this space. seems like Everyone is doing some form of a lending product, mm. but who are your closest competitors in, in terms of who you're trying to reach? Mm, mm. Um, so I'd say in terms of who we're reaching, you have kind of two set two sets of competitors. So you have uh, you have the centralized lenders who are dealing by and large uh, with a lot of the same, you know, same funds as us. Uh, and then uh, the structure of their product is slightly different. It tends to be more over collateralized, but I would say increasingly they've been doing under collateralized loans and and taking on credit risk where they have longer standing relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So, you know, this, this includes your range of providers like, uh, you know, Genesis, uh, BlockFi, um, Celsius, these kind of providers. Um, And uh, so I would say uh, the the key difference is generally that their products are uh, more over collateralized um, some of the uh, some of the the points of difference uh, for us are that our product is is generally more of a term loan product, whereas theirs might be kind of uh, an ongoing line of credit, um, and also collateral is is very important there. So active collateral management. Whereas what we are trying to provide our borrowers with is really a sense of certainty. So we try and provide fixed term, uh, fixed uh, fixed rate fixed uh, locked amount of collateral. So with our borrowers, if you continue to perform, if there's an adverse movement in the collateral value, uh, you don't you don't top up as a borrower, provided you're continuing to perform and meet your interest payments. But it's a double-edged mm-hmm. sword because you, you also don't then just release collateral if it moves in your favor. Um, instead, what you would do is you would refinance the loan uh, onto, you know, onto new terms if, it was, uh, if that was really important to you. Um, but that's because what we want to do is provide borrowers with a clear line of sight for their capital budgeting purposes over you know, the term of that loan, be it six months or, or 12 months, because that's really important mm-hmm. to managing, a, managing and growing a business. Um, then to turn to some of our competitors in the on-chain side of things. So you then have uh, you know, two, two kind of notable ones would probably be more like uh, TruFi. Uh, which is also looking at institutional borrowers. I think that you know they're, they're doing really interesting work. Um, one of the key points of difference there would be that they have kind of central underwriting within the team, and then they also have kind of community voting in terms of you know you need you need to hold the token and and kind of stake it and vote uh, to get a loan kind of through the funding process, uh, which uh, which can take a bit of time, but that's how they're pursuing decentralization. Uh, and then uh, they would have, say, a single pool uh, for a given asset. So let's say a single, you know, um, uh, true USD uh, pool or a single uh, USDC pool, whereas Maple would be pursuing different strategies. 
So an LP can choose to you know, fund a pool that is focused on a given industry or a given region or selected on the basis of the pool delegate who is underwriting. Our underwriting is, you know, our strategy for scaling underwriting is with, you know, is with this pool delegate role who is kind of incentivized and has, uh, has their risks aligned. Uh, another protocol um, that's, uh, that's also new to market uh, would be uh, Goldfinch, which is, uh, seems to have pursued more kind of uh, non-crypto native use cases uh, to begin with. I think it's, it's lending to uh, you know, fintech lenders in regions like say Nigeria or, or, uh, or Mexico. So it's, it's trying to act as more direct capital markets infrastructure to off-chain off -chain, um, companies. Whereas Maple's very much sort of focused on the, the crypto native, crypto -native uh, mm -hmm. uh, economy to begin with. We feel that there's a really rich uh, growth runway within, within crypto. So <laughs> enough, enough of an opportunity for us to focus on there. Exactly, exactly. You know, I was going to say with uh, TrueFi, right? You mentioned that they rely on a community voting structure, which can be inefficient, um, one. Number two, I'm wondering about their credit assessment ability. I mean, obviously you have more minds coming together, but that also means, I guess, just more effort uh, to get to consensus as to, you know, who is a worthy borrower. And I wonder if some people might say, well, for Maple Finance, they sort of centralize that whole process in the form of a pool delegate where you guys choose who that pool delegate is and then you know let that process kind of play out efficiently i don't know that's that's just how it's being processed in my head right now you know based on what you just said yeah it, it, it's an interesting point of difference i i would probably have to clarify it slightly so I think uh, TrueFi is TrueFi is building out their own risk expertise and credit team. So it's um, I I think they have their own team that would be looking at looking at credit going forward. Uh, and I think what what they're doing is is certainly very promising because I, I understand that they're looking to kind of build their own credit score, like on chain credit score. Um, so I think that has the potential to be you know like a really powerful, promising tool and enabler for the space. Ultimately, we want to see. You know, we want to see uh, under collateralized lending on chain grow, and we think it's large enough mm -hmm. for sort of multiple participants. Um, but to kind of to then sort of contrast that with the pool delegate, it, it's quite right that if you know if we were to choose all all of the pool delegates ourselves going forward, uh, then that would be a measure of centralization. So that's one thing where we actually want to um, to. Uh, push that decision making out more towards the community. So we'll have we we already have our first pool delegate, which is Orthogonal Trading, a uh, fund based out mm -hmm. of Australia. Then we have uh, our second pool delegate, um, who we will announce soon. Uh, but then beyond that, like once once we start to get beyond the first few pool delegates, it would really be a pool delegate proposes being whitelisted and added to the protocol uh, because it's you know because it is a uh, uh, a trusted and important position. And then the community could vote to approve that through a uh, token holder vote. Um, and in that way, we would decentralize the decision-making around who gets to become a pool delegate so that you end up with, you know, a, a, a balanced, uh, you know, a balanced set of pool delegates that can help scale the protocol. Gotcha. Well, now I think we're getting to 
a really interesting part of Maple Finance, which is this governance piece. And the Maple community recently passed a proposal to have the Maple Dow invest $100,000 of its treasury into something called the D-Hedge Top Index. Um, Explain why this proposal was created in the first place and how investing in this index benefits Maple token holders or other players in the ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Leslie. So this is one of the ways that we're starting to think about treasury treasury management solutions, um, both for ourselves and also where we can fit in in that ecosystem. And I think DHedge and particular the DTOP index, which is kind of like a, a rebalancing index of the top performing pools on, uh, on DHedge, uh, fits in. Going back to what I said earlier, I mentioned how treasury should probably think of managing, managing themselves in terms of having a low risk allocation, a medium risk allocation, and a high risk allocation. Um, so for us, we, uh, we look at how, I, how we want to manage our own treasury. What our objective is to extend the runway of our treasury into the future, but to do so in a way that has a prudent risk return trade-off. And so what we've done with DHedge is we've taken a small portion. So for us, you know, it's like 1% uh, of the uh, 1% of the treasury. And this is what we would, what we would call a higher risk allocation for us uh, because it's, you know, taking more speculative, um, you know, uh, speculative perspective on, crypto assets by investing in, in the, uh, in the DTOP index. Uh, what we, what we would then look at doing, uh, is taking, you know, carving out an allocation and then putting it towards medium risk, uh, protocols, which might offer a higher yield, uh, you know, a higher yield than what you would get on say Aave or compound, uh, but a lower, lower, uh, return than what we might get on something like the D hedge index. Uh, but with, uh, with probably a lower standard deviation of returns. And so that way we'll have, you know, a money market allocation, which would be something like compound and Aave. Then we'll have uh, this medium risk allocation. And in the medium risk allocation, we would hope that other protocols might use Maple. And we're actually in talks with a number of other protocols to participate in a future liquidity round. Uh, and then we'd have the higher risk allocation to, um, uh, to D-Hedge. And so we wanted to, to establish this partnership to, you know, to promote closer ties in the space. Uh, we feel very aligned with D-Hedge's mission and, uh, and the team there. And so, yeah, so we would encourage other protocols to, you know, to start to consider the same thing. It's, it's been said, I think it was in one of the blog posts that I read that, you know, Maple can be used as a treasury management solution for DAOs to deposit liquidity in future pools. Can you say more about um, how this idea came about? Yeah, uh, definitely. Use of fixed income instruments is, is something that is kind of like kind of lacking in the DeFi space at the moment. So I'd say everybody, you know, everybody's certainly aware of yield farming and they're certainly aware of kind of, you know, what, what you might call like money market protocols, um, like, you know, as I mentioned, use, using Aave or, or Compound. Um, and uh, the, you know, fixed, fixed income plays, plays a large role in any sort of uh, balanced portfolio. And what we what we're thinking here is that Maple provides a really good fixed income solution, which offers higher yields than what you would get on over collateralized protocols. 
um, but which is a lower risk than say more speculative purposes, like uh, you know, say just yield farming on another protocol um, uh, and, and kind of banking on the token valuation on one of those protocols. So what we would encourage uh, protocols to do is to uh, participate as liquidity providers on Maple, where at present um, liquidity providers in the first pool were earning about 11% from the underlying loans. And then they were earning about an additional sort of 40, uh, 45% from, uh, you know, from the token rewards when it started. And so what we've been in conversations uh, with other protocols around is whether they might participate using some of the USDC that they've raised from previous token sales uh, to start to, you know, earn a yield so that they can extend their runway. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a longer term deposit. They just deposit it. It's locked for 180 days. So they don't have to think about it. They don't have to rotate it between different protocols. And then it's a sustainable yield form, uh, sustainable form of yield uh, for them, where it's coming from, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of, you know, valuable services provided by crypto native companies who are, who are the underlying borrowers, like market makers, market neutral funds. Um, so we think it forms an integral part of sensible treasury management, because otherwise, if you're a treasury, you might have raised 10 to 15 million. And a lot of them are sitting there wondering what they can do with it. And they're starting to get speculative on ideas like just purchasing the tokens in other protocols. And I would say unless yeah. investing is the core competency of the people in that, you know, behind that treasury, it's actually not what they've been entrusted with the funds uh, of, you know, investors who bought into their, uh, to their protocol for. Um, instead, they should just focus on earning kind of a prudent yield and focus on, you know, building out what they're building. Otherwise, you kind of end up with actually what's sort of a recreation of the conglomerate era of like the 1960s and 70s, where you had just like, very wealthy tr corporate treasuries that just ended up piling money into like sort of speculative acquisitions. Right, right. Oh, this really expands, you know, the conversation of what you just said there, right, into a, a whole discussion about really the the similarities that we could see with traditional mm. finance when it comes to the corporate lending market. Because, you know, there's some things in crypto that do mirror what, what we see currently in traditional finance and what's not broken, right? Don't fix it. Yeah. But there are a whole ton of, I guess, innovative things that you can do simply because there is this concept called on-chain technology, right? With blockchain <laughs> um, and, and, and with DeFi and just focusing on Ethereum alone as one blockchain is already taking up so much mindshare, right? And, and there are a whole number of other layer ones. Uh, there's a whole discussion right now being had bring back discussions from 2018 about scaling layer one solutions, right? So L2s now are kind of back in vogue because now, you know, it's not just theory, you know, it's being applied to layer one solutions. Um, so there are a number of things I feel like uh, on the infrastructure side that if it actually gets implemented correctly and scalability as a problem evaporates because of the, you know, success of layer twos, protocols like Maple Finance can sort of be freed up to introduce a whole nother set of products, mm. right? Are there anything else that, you know, either on the infrastructure side or just within the market structure itself that you think uh, could be more efficient in order to make your jobs a lot easier? Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's a very sort of nuanced question, but a very important one. So I think 
you know, so, some of the things that we're very interested in, if, if we just look at kind of on-chain for the moment, some of the things that we're really interested in are what's happening in credit scoring. So that there's a few protocols that are doing like very protocols and teams doing very interesting things. Um, you know, uh, Teller uh, is one, um, uh, uh, Credmark, uh, Spectral Finance, uh, you know, Xmargin. Uh, and I think Xmargin is doing something exceptionally interesting uh, in that they're, they're looking at kind of tying both on-chain activity with activity on centralized exchanges, which something like that is an important piece of infrastructure that offers a kind of bridge where a lot of our uh, potential borrower clients who uh, conduct a lot of activity on centralized exchanges can then provide, you know, a kind of zero knowledge credit score. So you can imagine that having like a zero knowledge credit score, if you're an institution, uh, you, or you could say a zero knowledge credit rating in a way, uh, you know, would be something very, you know, very conducive to being able to participate in, uh, in capital markets. So that's something, that's something we're very interested in as a layer of, uh, as a layer of infrastructure. Um, I think, you know, layer two and scaling solutions uh, have certainly been great as well. Um, for us, that's particularly important on probably more so on the liquidity provider side where you might have more people depositing smaller tickets uh, into Maple. It's probably less important where you're a borrower, maybe borrowing, you know, two, two or five million and, and you're paying a, a quite a large interest payment. You probably don't care as much about gas fees. Um, uh, so so those, are, those are two things um, that we've considered. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and the other one I would say, which is kind of linked to the first is yeah, like kind of zero, zero knowledge proofs. Um, I think, you know, both, both for identity, things like whitelisting, that kind of thing, it's, it's, uh, it's gonna be important in future. And it's gonna be a big enabler of future institutional uh, participation. Where we ultimately see ourselves is as a layer of infrastructure where we're providing a, a capital market, pool delegates can come on and, and kind of conduct their business um, and un, you know, credit assess borrowers, liquidity providers can come on and earn a yield through the platform, and then borrowers can use us to take out credit and then and then expand their business operations and pursue opportunities. We yeah, we we just perform this this function of being a layer of infrastructure, really. Not just it's a very important aspect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the name of improving capital efficiency, right? Which is what we could all use a little more of, uh, especially on the trading side, you know, and, and that's why we're, we're excited to be a supporter of Maple as a borrower ourselves. And we look forward to the second cohort um, being announced soon, as well as the second full delegate and kind of all of the other things that you have in progress. Well, Sid, really appreciate your time today on Crypto Unstacked. I know our listeners are going to uh, very much enjoy our conversation today. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Leslie. Uh, it was really, really great to be on. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.